dates at Twitter. The combination of these two elements, enchantment and surrender, is then essential to this love we are discussing. Their combination is not a mere coexistence. They're not two parts placed together, one next to the other, but rather one is born and nourished from the other. It's love due to surrender via enchantment. Jose Ortega, you guess it. Sobre el amor. Thursday, March 17, 2011. Never ignore people who can write really big checks. One of the members of my relatively small but devoted AdGrock blog fan base was an early and influential Twitter employee named Jessica Verilli, a.k.a. AdJess. AdJess was one of the public faces of the burgeoning social media juggernaut who seemed to float among the empyrean of much-watched Twitterati, along with the founders Jack Dorsey and Ev Williams and their various lieutenants. The previous November, she had randomly messaged me via Twitter after a particularly successful blog post. Come March, she had heard echoes of our manufactured launch buzz and asked me in for lunch at Twitter's office. As always, before meeting absolutely anyone, even for as little as a random coffee, I did due diligence, in this case on at Jess. Here's more startup training for you. Walking into any meeting, you should know every goddamn thing there is to know about the other person. If you don't, you're failing. Quoth Emerson and the intro screen to Mortal Kombat 3. There is no knowledge that is not power. And that's especially true in terms of people. That means a combined Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn stock, at least. You should have done that on all the players in your space already, incidentally. Read between the lines of their idealized and cosmetically enhanced CVs. Less than a year at a company means they didn't vest their first year of equity, which means either they or the company sucked, possibly both. Leaving it precisely four years means they're plotters, punching the equivalent of the white-collar Silicon Valley clock until the next shift. Which friends or connections do you have in common? Do they know your dipshit douche friends you maintain for career reasons or the ones you actually respect? As true now as in Machiavelli's time, men are judged by the company they keep. Where do they hang out? Cheap tastes or expensive? Do they have that lean and hungry look of Cassius and Julius Caesar and eat at dingy taquerias or perhaps live off cheap staples like ramen or food substitutes? Those are the truly dangerous ones, the ones who live like organized crime trigger men, guerrilla fighters, or sailors at sea, eating shitty food and living in cheap, dumpy crash pads, and who couldn't give a damn about quality of life. Footnote. Sam Altman, the one-time Adgrock mentor and now president of Y Combinator, gave himself scurvy by subsisting on packaged ramen while founding Looped, his geolocation startup. Do you realize how long you need to be malnourished to suffer from scurvy? He was and is the lean and dangerous type. End footnote. Those are the people to fear because they don't need anything an antagonist can deprive them of. Or do they have a score of check-ins at Benu, Saison, and A16? If they're not financially independent, then they are harmless tools. They'll do anything to keep the parade of fungi, terrine, monkfish, and tangerine peel abalone coming. What do they look like in photos taken over time? Do they look fit and healthy, with shots of them in corporate-branded nut-hugger biking outfits on a group ride on scenic Skyline Boulevard? Do they keep a stable work-life balance with regularly scheduled two-hour workouts and time for a Thursday night date? Or do they look like they got ingested by a blue whale and spent three days transiting its digestive system? Total commitment, like unconditional love, is the only type that matters. 
The bike-riding, date-night-going types will never give everything to a company or an idea and are nothing more than complacent bourgeois, whatever trappings of the disruptive innovator they may sport, often in the form of ponderous blog posts or a bookshelf of bound B-school-level bloviation. The ones who could pass for a homeless person, though, those are the startup kamikazes who will give everything for the entrepreneurial cause and are stopped only by death or jail. Are they what passes for the American ruling elite? Do they hail from the urban archipelago of American privilege? Chevy Chase, Maryland, Winnetka, Illinois, Tiburon, California, Scarsdale, New York, and so forth? Or are they from Visalia, California, or Chimicum, Washington? And did they go to a high school named after an astronaut or a president? Did they go to a high school with either day or prep in the name, or with the titular formula, the blank school, where the blank is something majestic and or Anglo-Saxon sounding? Then they're playing the slow and steady long game, accruing social capital and personal brand gradually, like ants storing food for the winter. How did they reach the rarefied heights of the tech elite? Did they trudge along on the upper-class tour bus from the Ivy League to consulting and or finance and burnout? Or did they fight their way out of some backwater, earning their seat at the table based only on chutzpah and or blitzkrieg-style success? The latter are fearsome. The former, not so much. Before you sit down with people on whom your entire financial future and that of your descendants will depend, you should know them better than their mothers do. Know what they want, whether money, power, social approval of various flavors, or merely a comfortable life, and you can predict 90% of what they eventually do. All this snooping seems weird or unethical to you? I'll note it's all public record, and no laws were harmed in the filming of this due diligence movie. Back to Adgrok's first date with Twitter. Jessica, then the one-woman army that constituted Twitter's corporate development team, was a former Division I lacrosse player for Stanford. Her father was an internist in Seattle, where she was raised. The familial abode was a five-bedroom, three-bathroom home on the shores of Lake Washington, in a posh part of Seattle. That would also explain the prep in her high school. This was West Coast gentry, all right. If you must know, she was evidently dating a Twitter engineer who would wind up, spoiler alert, interviewing me. At the time, Twitter was housed in a generic-looking, highish-rise office building on Folsom Street, between 3rd and 4th Streets, a few blocks north of Adgrock. I walked, taking a scenic route that led me up a back alley, across Brannon, through a side street that featured a Filipino Masonic temple, one of those inexplicable vestiges of pre-tech SF you saw occasionally, and right to South Park's 50-yard line. A tranquil oasis in an urban desert, South Park was reminiscent of those small, intimate parks you find in certain London neighborhoods. This is no accident. South Park was developed in the 1850s, precisely as a simulacrum of such a cozy London townhouse and park development. An oval roadway enclosed a grassy park with trees, benches, and an incongruous playground, incongruous as there were likely no children within a half-mile radius. By 2011, it was the epicenter of the SF startup boom, with startup logos poking out of second-story windows and off the t-shirts of the bustling crowd of nerds that churned in it during lunchtime. A few design and architecture firms still managed to survive the escalating rents, having gentrified the area in the pre-tech 90s from the vagrants and drug addicts who once populated Soma. Footnote. Similar to the birth of Christ in Western history, everything in San Francisco history is classified as having happened either before or after the current tech boom. 
Bars and restaurants are frequented and mourned once they inevitably feel the pinch and close, not because they're exceptional in any way, but because they predate the arrival of the hated techies. End quote. I got to Third Street in Folsom. A block farther down was the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, SF MoMA, which has an unexciting permanent collection, but is housed in a stunning building by the Swiss architect Mario Boda. SF MoMA is the only serious art venue in the city. Beyond the museum and perhaps the symphony, the city is a cultural desert. But who needs Gauguin when you've got Google? Facing SF MoMA was the Moscone Center, named for former San Francisco Mayor George Moscone, who was famously assassinated in 1978 in his office in City Hall along with Harvey Milk, the first openly gay elected official in California. An immense complex spanning two city blocks, it houses every major tech conference you can name. Oracle, Apple, Salesforce, Google, all have their product shindigs there, as well as the various niche ones like GDC, Gaming, Java One, the Java Programming Language, and RSA, Cybersecurity. If you have any tech career at all, you'll one day don a corporate-branded lanyard and name tag and stroll into the tightly choreographed spectacle of capitalism that is a tech conference, complete with staged product announcements, fireside chats, and a makeshift favela of promotional booths. I made a left on Folsom, and halfway down the street, I entered the completely generic lobby of the completely generic poured concrete building at 795 Folsom Street. Twitter had only two of the floors, but as it would do in every building it occupied, it was gradually expanding. Uniformed guards manned the reception desk, and there were two security checks, one on the ground floor, whose passing granted you a name sticker and an assigned elevator to an assigned floor. Once there, the receptionist would take your lobby name tag and give you a Twitter one in return. On the badge was a stamp in Time Delay Inc., it faded as time went on and disappeared after a couple of hours, ensuring that you couldn't keep it and reuse it. All this security, which is common in large, high-profile startups, is to prevent journalists and stalking fans from getting in and stealing screenshots or overhearing conversations. In a culture in which people show up in chicken suits to formal meetings, security is one of the few things the self-consciously irreverent tech company takes seriously. As I was soon to find is de rigueur, I was asked to sign a non-disclosure agreement that made it illegal for me to so much as leak the wallpaper design in the kitchens or reveal any knowledge, whether carnal or technical, gleaned while inside Twitter. Then I waited. A couple of overdressed and nervous-looking people waited with me, probably job candidates. There were large-format coffee table books, artsy tomes about the new world of data science, and landscape photography on the coffee tables. The reception area itself was tastefully paneled with reclaimed wood, and that little Twitter bird logo was on everything, down to the elegant black coffee mugs kept in the reception's mini-kitchen. Jess appeared and was exactly like her publicity photos online. With an ever-present smile, she had that energetic and effusive personality of the lifelong athlete who'd cranked her endorphin levels to the human maximum. Want a little tour before lunch? she offered. How could I say no? We divigated through the offices on the way to the cafe. As a workspace, it was standard SF Cool startup. Long rows of shared desks dotted with each employee's tech company mise en place. Large monitor, air on chair, smattering of books and personal effects. 
loft ceilings exposed to bare concrete, and with plumbing, both literal and internet, shooting across in long runs, thick bunches of bright blue RJ45 cables alongside the painted cast iron pipes, much distressed wood and hot rolled steel furniture, faux stag's heads molded from synthetics, and those nightmarish flocks of birds, not the bland corporate logo, but what you see populating a truly Hunter S. Thompson-esque psychedelic freakout on bare walls, usually in some shade of bluish pastel. The company canteen continued the preening design, but at this point, I'm running out of cute ways to describe the shit you see at Restoration Hardware, so you can just imagine it instead. I'd later learn that Sarah Morishiga, the wife of the founder and CEO of Twitter, Ev Williams, was behind the company's very consistent design aesthetic. The bro dump of many tech companies, this was certainly not. Twitter numbered something like 400 employees at this point, so it was relatively small by big tech company standards. Despite that, and the fact Twitter's revenue at this point was de minimis, the cafe churned out fashionably healthy food from the comfort variety, house-brined pastrami sandwiches, to the fancier, seared tuna on designer greens. I grabbed whatever was closest and found a seat. I gave Jess the soft sell on AdGrock and described our successful launch and future product plans. We kibitzed pleasantly about my blog posts, of which she was an active reader. We had first really met when we mutually followed and messaged each other after one particularly popular post. Toward the end of this polite but uneventful meal, the man who would make Twitter make money appeared. A random encounter in what would be a season of such fortuitous run-ins. Tall, well-coiffed, and conspicuously well-dressed, even in a company where appearances mattered more than most, Adam Bain was a much-gossiped-about recent poaching from Fox, where he had led all digital monetization efforts for the Rupert Empire. In a hipster world of fixies and intentionally distressed wood and people, he was the adult in the room, keeping an eye on the register. Jessica introduced us. So what are you working on? he asked, taking a valuable minute out of his day. In a panic, I realized I hadn't brought my Adgrok laptop to lunch and was therefore not ready for an impromptu demo. Fail. Always be closing, motherfucker. But we had an out. MRM, ever the inventive engineer who knew how to extract value six different ways from the same piece of code, had coded up an Adgrok-hosted demo site for the Grok Bar that allowed for a demo off any machine, including tablets or phones. Can I show you on your laptop? I asked, gesturing to the half-folded machine he was porting around like a security blanket, as your typical manager-class exec does. Sure. Taking over Bain's machine, I demoed enough of the grok bar to impress him, guiding him through the slick tables of performance data and sparklines, all updating gracefully as I navigated our demo e-commerce site. I wrapped the product reality in sufficient marketing sugar to make the medicine go down. Random encounter over, he headed off to his next meeting. Jess walked me out the door to the reception area. A security guard, posted like a bouncer at the door, pointedly took my name tag with the disappearing ink on the way out. Back at the office, Argiris was working away alone. As was happening with unsettling frequency, MRM had decided to stay home and forego the commute from his beachside town. There was always some excuse or another, but neither Argiris nor I was buying it, Argiris least of all. The trough of despair was claiming casualties. So, how'd lunch with Jesco? Argiris asked absently, not looking up from his screen. I stood right next to him to get his attention. What do you think about selling to Twitter? 
Tuesday, March 22, 2011. After our lunch, Jess had given me a formal email intro to two key people at Twitter, Kevin Wheel and Alex Roeder, both engineers on the then-nascent ads team. The weird tingle of corporate attraction I had felt on that first date with Jess had clearly been reciprocated. I was introduced as a badass whom they should talk to immediately. As I hope I've made clear in many disclaimers throughout this work, there was nothing badass about my career in technology. The scant success I had was due purely to happenstance, combined with being a ruthless little shit when it counted. No, I mention this to underline how the snowballing interest of a larger company in a smaller one resembles the intoxicating enchantment one feels for a new romantic interest, house, or car. The target of your interest lays out his or her wares and tries to beguile, but past a certain point, it's you, the buyer, who's seducing yourself into the acquisition. Polite emails with Kevin turned into a proposed lunch, this time with the full team. Thus did all of AdGrok HQ hoof it over to Twitter from the Grok pad, a bit tense and not knowing what to expect. Entrance routine repeated, we found ourselves around a circular table in the middle of the lunchtime hubbub in Twitter's main dining room. Kevin Wheel was a summa cum laude graduate of Harvard College and, like me, had dropped out of a Ph.D. program in physics, he at Stanford, before boarding the tech roller coaster. Alex Roter was a longtime Googler who had been on the founding engineering team of AdSense. Footnote. AdSense was the second-place product in the Google monetization arsenal after AdWords. You know how you get these little text ads on the right-hand side and now even the upper header of Google search results? AdSense is those same ads running not on a Google.com search result, but on whatever random parts of the web include a snippet of Google code on their site. It's the poor man's ad network, in that even your knitting blog could easily participate. While the monetization was low, in aggregate, it amounted to a respectable revenue stream for Google. End footnote. Both were line managers on the ads team, the lieutenants in a tech company that make the actual on-the-ground army run. Between them and the AdGrok boys, the conversation soon turned to the technology challenges AdGrok had faced. Scaling our back-end, and most important, dealing with Google's, at times finicky, ads API. The boys described their experience hacking through and around its undocumented idiosyncrasies. API is Application Programming Interface, and it's the set of functions and subroutines that an outside party can run in order to build its own third-party services on top of a company's service. For example, the Twitter API allows someone to build a tool that gathers all your tweets and presents their engagement data, for example, retweets, favorites, in an elegant and useful way. Effectively, it's the way computers talk to each other when they are owned by different companies. In the case of an ad system, it's the way developers build tools for sophisticated marketers to create and manage advertisements. Since the native interfaces that large publishers like Google and Facebook provide are often unhelpful or are designed for small advertisers, an ads API is a critical part of the monetization strategy, and it's essentially the plumbing through which a large fraction of revenue will be ingested. At this point in our story, Twitter had no ads API. It barely had ads at all, having launched promoted tweets only a year before. Suspicions were, of course, rife that it would open an API to developers at some point, and Kevin's focus on the topic seemed to confirm it. Suddenly, Kevin, who was seated to my right, interrupted the tech kibitzing and looked at me. Maybe you should join us on that. Join you? Join you how? I asked. 
like in acquiring you, Kevin said with a smile. While I had experienced a premonition after the Jess lunch, actually hearing this come out of the mouth of a Twitter engineer was a very different story. Well, I guess we'd have to talk about that, Kevin, I said, speaking through a rapidly tightening throat. Back at the grok pad, we huddled. This was the first time we'd heard the term acquisition in any half-serious context. Being the complete neophytes that we were, we had no clue how to parse it, so I ran the news past the people we trusted, or at least would know, WTF, to do here. PG was my first email. As expected, he was bearish on the whole thing, calling it a distraction, and advising us to ignore it and to get used to saying no. He was right, in the sense that any decent startup will get a dozen acquisition offers as it rises to prominence. I used the word offer lightly. Companies will mention the possibility, but often the entire process is just an excuse for dissecting a company on the founder's time, the market intelligence a big company does to remain relevant, as well as keep from getting blindsided by an upstart. He also advised me privately to shield the boys from any acquisition chatter. Next, I pinged Sokka. Adgrok-Sokka relations had cooled considerably by that point, and I couldn't figure out why. After a few email exchanges in the early days of the Adkami War, he'd gone silent. He'd ignored any and all requests for introductions at Google, his former employer, or anything else for that matter. Unlike Russ and Ben, who involved themselves on a weekly, if not daily basis, and who even came out to our first conference appearance to support the effort, Sokka was basically a non-presence in Adgrok. That was all about to change. Minutes after I pinged him, he called to ask what was going on. I informed him of this out-of-nowhere buyout chatter. He then called back with an inside scoop of what had transpired in that lunch. Evidently, Wheel was extemporizing a potential acquisition offer nobody had formally agreed to. In the weeks that followed, Sokka called at all hours, often when he was in the back of a taxi. There were texts at 2 a.m. We were all kind of puzzled by the change of heart and were to a man somewhat hesitant to entrust our fates to his imperious presence. Though welcome in our funding time of need, he now demanded a faith he hadn't quite earned in sweat equity or trust-building FaceTime. But Sokka was the professional investor, the man who invested for investors, and he had his own priorities, which were different from those of the Russ Siegelmans, not to mention our own. A relevant detail that I mentioned earlier, but which may have passed you by. Christopher Stephen Sokka was one of the largest equity stakeholders in Twitter, dating from an early investment, and purportedly from later top-ups in his stake. The word on the street was also that he had helped J.P. Morgan buy 10% of Twitter in February 2011, buying shares in private transactions from founders and employees alike at a relatively stratospheric price of $21 a share. Sokka was the Twitter man, constantly touting the company publicly and in the fuzzy background of every new piece of Twitter gossip. If anyone could guide us through the next steps, it was Sokka. But could we trust him? Wednesday, March 23, 2011 I heard the lunch went great. Can you come in and meet with Adam Bain? Jessica had written to me, moments after we had left the meeting with Kevin and Alex. The invitations we can't refuse. So the next day I repeated the Twitter check-in exercise, meeting Jess yet again amid the coffee table books, nervous job candidates, and expensive design. She walked me all of 30 steps and parked me in a conference room, with instructions to wait. 
Upon her prompt disappearance, it became evident this was the get-to-know-you meeting with Adam. Twenty minutes went by. I started to get mildly pissed. I didn't wait this long for a beer, much less a meeting. Hey, Adam Bain said, poking his head through the door. He walked only halfway in, holding the glass door open behind him. Lady Gaga is here, he announced, with the goofy expression of a teeny bopper fan. He pointed down a hallway that ended in a large amphitheater where a mass of Twitter employees had gathered. Who the fuck was Lady Gaga? A proviso. I am the uncoolest person you'll ever meet when it comes to pop culture. I don't watch anything resembling TV. I don't listen to what you'd call music, and I'd call noise. An exciting Friday night to me is a bottle of Matsu Ten Tripel, sucked down while gloomily reading Michel Houellebecq. Hopefully, strenuous fornication makes an appearance at some point, but that's about the extent of my cultural communion with my fellow man. Or woman. Also, thanks to too much mucking about with engines and firearms, my hearing is shot, and I'm afflicted with a serious case of tinnitus, a constant high-pitched whistle in my hearing, which serves as the real soundtrack to my life. Lastly, as I learned in a misguided year of lessons with my piano teacher, Grand Aunt, I am absolutely tone-deaf. Long story short, I don't know shit about whatever dancing monkey of the moment is amusing the plebes. I smiled the polite smile of someone who doesn't get the joke. Adam took a seat directly across the narrow table. Over the course of the next 45 minutes, he sketched out his thinking on Twitter monetization, insofar as the company understood it at the time. He was a good pitch man, like the best salesman. He was suave, without being slimy. The impression I got in that hour-long meeting, and as history has certainly gone on to prove, was that if anybody could squeeze money out of the rock of billions of tweets a week, it would be Adam Bain. Spoiler alert. Do not read if you like suspense, Dostoevsky, and or incremental character development. Half the friends I have on Facebook, the ones dating from some long-ago period like high school or a former employer, I keep around only in order to see if my initial suppositions about them and how their lives would develop were right. I squelch them from my feed. I don't need to see the weekly puppy or child pictures, but I tune in every couple of years when my mind trips over some stale memory. Who did that beauty you crushed on finally marry? Did the pretentious kid become the smarmy yuppie you thought he would? With the clairvoyance of hindsight, I'll provide those answers for the Twitter cast you just met. Kevin Wheel would become the head of product for Twitter, setting the vision and timeline for everything Twitter builds. Alex Roeder would become the head of engineering, managing that engine room of a tech company, the row upon row of busily coding engineers. Adam Bain would become chief operating officer, COO, running the day-to-day -day business affairs of the company, as well as sales. Jess Verrilli would become Director of Corporate Development, the one with the big checkbook and a mandate to acquire as much talent and technology as possible. What a company builds, SVP, product, how it builds it, SVP, engineering, how that eventual product is operationally run, COO, and what other companies it buys, corporate development, those are the core functions of any large tech company, and the people from the ads team we met during 48 busy hours in 2011 would, by 2015, be that core leadership of Twitter. This isn't as improbable as it may sound. Often at a tech company with an advertising business model bolted on to an otherwise user-facing product, the ads team will be the weakest team in the company. 
Ads is perceived as a necessary evil, and marketing ain't cool, so the hotshot 22-year-old kids who are the recruiting cannon fodder don't join up. The visionary CEO doesn't care about money, only the user experience, and manages by looking at usage dashboards, not revenue ones. Bold product initiatives that will rekindle always fickle app usage are greenlit, and their resources are allocated by CEO Fiat. Meanwhile, like a nanny chasing a particularly petulant charge, the ads team runs around reactively trying to monetize whatever comes out of the product development process. But Twitter was different. The ads team was actually the most dynamic, ready-to-ship and bustling team in the organization. While the core Twitter product hasn't changed in years, the ads team had been crackling with new products shipped regularly, either one step behind or ahead of rivals like Facebook, but always churning and burning. They also convinced the company's management to make ambitious and stunningly large acquisitions in the ads technology space. This was Twitter ads, and so its leadership eventually becoming company leadership, however unique among consumer Internet companies, was not a huge surprise. Friday, March 25, 2011 Matters really kicked into gear when Twitter sent us that sine qua non of startup scheming, a corporate NDA. This is effectively the Snapchat messaging of the corporate world. You can take a peek, but the message needs to effectively be deleted from your brain, or at least never leave it, forever. Shit had just gotten real, and we needed a lawyer, not a litigator like The Undertaker or Wang, whose generosity we didn't want to test anymore, but a lawyer skilled in the polite work of corporate governance. Conveniently, a few weeks before this, I'd gotten worried about our corporate paperwork, I had done the incorporation myself, as the boys were hopeless when it came to real-world deliverables like rent, payroll, or anything involving bureaucracy. But of course, I didn't exactly know what I was doing, and had just used Y Combinator's default incorporation forms and faxed it all from a Kinko's. The whole thing took maybe a total of two hours, from reserving a corporate name to getting confirmation from the state of Delaware. If we ever raised a real Series A or got acquired, our corporate ducks would have to be in a definitive row or their disorder would potentially sink the deal. Long before this moment, we had the good fortune to meet the founders of Twitter's first acquisition, a geolocation technology startup named Mixer Labs. One founder was Elad Gill, a YC investor and noted blogger whose eloquent and knowledgeable takes on the early-stage startup game I routinely devoured. The other was Atman Laraki, a former Google product manager who was then a member of the Twitter growth team. Both would rise to senior VP positions at Twitter, and both were savvy and seasoned operators in the M&A and startup space. They were also keen traders of startup social capital and had offered their time to occasionally advise us with no formal compensation involved. From them, we had gotten an introduction to Mitchell Zuckley, a big fish at the Big Fish Silicon Valley law firm Oric, Harrington, and Sutcliffe. Just Oric in Valley speak. After an effusive phone call, he arranged for his junior partner, Harold Yu, to give us a legal checkup. Footnote. One of the surprising in-the-living-of-it details about Valley hustling is how one can mobilize an army of lawyers, accountants, engineers, PR people, public company wheeler-dealers, partner relationship people, the whole lot of what makes the Valley money machine go round without meeting any of them. Of the epic-sized cast involved with Adgrok, I might have met maybe half of them. The rest never existed to me beyond phone calls and emails. End footnote. 
This was all comped, of course. Like the best Valley law firms, they played the long game and were big believers in the first-dose-is-free business model. They knew that down the line there'd be expensive legal work in the offing, and so based on nothing but an introduction, the Y Combinator badge, and a half-hour conversation with me, they politely asked us to send them our incorporation docs. The following week, I had spent hour after comped hour on the phone with you, going through our legal health report. Conveniently, Mitch Zookley and Oric had also been corporate counsel for Mixer Labs. As such, they knew this M&A cloak-and-dagger world well, and the Twitter playbook best of all. They were the perfect lawyers to retain. Here's another lesson for the aspiring startupista. Don't skimp on lawyers. An error at the hour of signing a big contract or negotiating an acquisition could easily cost you millions or be the deciding factor between summers in Ibiza with your model girlfriend or taking a consolation prize job as product manager at Oracle instead. Look, you get pre-tax commuter cost benefits there. Get the best legal guns you can pay for, and if you can't pay for it, convince them to accept something other than money in exchange. Lawyers didn't get into law because they're good at business. Bamboozle them, however, so long as they get cracking. I sent Oric the NDA to give it a sniff test. It was probably boilerplate, but it was the first company-level NDA we had ever seen. Trust, but verify, and keep a loaded shotgun under your bed. Consider for a moment Eurasian politics in the 16th through 19th centuries and how different things are today. Western Europe had not achieved the worldwide dominance it would eventually enjoy, nor had the Islamic world begun its precipitous decline. Lest we forget, Turkish artillery was using Vienna for target practice as late as 1683, and only last-minute alliances kept the Islamic world from extending clear to Bavaria. European powers competed for favor from potential Asian allies to use against other Europeans. Imagine France teaming up with Iran against the United Kingdom these days, as Napoleon did in 1807, and Middle Eastern governments meddled in European affairs in a way unthinkable now. In such a world, European states and the great Middle Eastern powers of the Ottoman and Persian empires dealt with each other mostly as equals, with all the diplomatic frippery and double-dealing this required. A key actor in this fascinating civilizational face-off was the dragoman. The etymological root is the Arabic word for translator. More than a mere interpreter, the dragoman was a cultural matchmaker who selectively mistranslated missives in order to achieve a desired diplomatic result, often unknown to either communicating party. Thus did the sublime port's imperious message to Queen Victoria greeting her as a tributary get toned down to that of an esteemed diplomatic partner. When Victoria wrote back with a stiff upper lip, the dragoman would layer on the subservience an oriental despot expected. Of course, matters grew complicated when it came to treaties, as it was no longer an issue of translating tone, but one of actual geopolitical substance. On that front, the dragomans got themselves and their employers into all sorts of trouble. While treaties were often signed in whatever diplomatic language was chosen, native translations were made for each signing party, cleaving the agreement into two versions that were often vague at best and inconsistent at worst. So you see, we have two types of mistranslation at work, the intentional kind that serves as diplomatic lubricant to get a deal done, and the more serious kind, which leaves each side thinking it agreed to a different thing. The Silicon Valley world is an almost perfect analog, and we have deal dragomans of our own.
When a deal really gets underway, things assume a certain Le Carre-esque intrigue. There are always two channels of communication at work in a deal. One, a formal one, typically features email and attached documents from founders to a company's corp dev team, as well as a possibly relevant product team. The second is the informal and clandestine. For lack of a better word, let's call it scheming. Such scheming happens either by phone or in person, with no emails or messaging involved. As a legal note, it's against the law to record phone calls in California, and such recordings are generally inadmissible in court, save for criminal trials with a warrant. So when the scheming begins, a startup world that does 99.9% .9 of its communication via the asynchronous channels of email, messaging, and social media suddenly goes old school, and every communication is conducted via a hushed phone call in a closed-door conference room. That's when you can tell you're really in some juicy shit. Conversely, if you're still emailing about it, there's actually nothing real going on. This other channel partly resembles Cold War drama and partly resembles that time you announced to your fourth grade class that you were going to kiss Becky Walker after sixth period P.E. class and all the resulting gossiping and crosstalk. As events progress, the drama becomes more and more infantile, convincing you finally, as if you needed more proof this late in your startup trajectory, that humans, even at the rarefied heights of the economic elite, are in truth scared, needy children playing at dress-up and pretending to be grown-ups. Now, if this had been Wall Street and had involved public companies and people such as soon-to-be-acquired startup founders, employees, and investors were engaged in a convoluted game of highly selective telephone, shuffling around inside information with the obvious intent to privately profit in either actual cash or just influence, we'd all have been hauled off to jail, or at least indicted. But from the get-go, it was clear this was par for the tech course, and nobody batted an eye. Either you talked and played a role in the deal, or you didn't, because you feared getting fired for breaching confidentiality. But nobody was preaching sermons here either way. And sure as shit, nobody was regulating any of it. Given the moral chiaroscuro we were entering, it becomes necessary to birth the first and only composite character in this memoir. We've named some Twitter insiders thus far, but other unnamed insiders were also involved. If everyone is guilty, then nobody is guilty. Henceforward, any Twitter insider or otherwise interested party who dishes us information to settle a score or to help the deal get done or, for private motives we could only guess at, will be known as the catch-all collage character of, wait for it, Deep Tweet. Yes, Deep Tweet. Deep Tweet gave us the inside line on Twitter's real valuation and on what terms it had just raised a mountain of money, what fraction of the total float our shares represented, the inner workings of the board, and why Twitter would eventually seem like such an unholy clusterfuck from the outside answer because it was a clusterfuck on the inside. The fights between and among the board and the management, often staged at dysfunctional board meetings at which every big-name board member arrived with his or her entourage. The fact that both Ev Williams and Biz Stone were mentally checked out, in fact, both would leave Twitter within two months. That there was little product leadership after the VP of product, Jason Goldman, left. The various internal messes that every tech company subject to sudden and unexpected meteoric growth experiences and sedulously conceals from the outside world, presenting that flawless exterior canvas ready for the journalists to paint their pristine narrative fallacy mural.
Footnote. For the first and the last time in my life, I'll quote that intellectual poser, Nassim Nicholas Taleb. The narrative fallacy addresses our limited ability to look at sequences of facts without weaving an explanation into them, or equivalently, forcing a logical link, an arrow of relationship upon them. Where this propensity can go wrong is when it increases our impression of understanding. This fallacy is what underpins literally billions of dollars in tech startup value. End footnote. But what a fair play, asks the moral reader. Sadly, the startup game isn't played according to the Marquis of Queensbury's rules. Startup entrepreneur, you are David before Goliath, the nascent state of Israel during the 48 War. Crockett at the Alamo, the Spartans at Thermopylae. Choose your favorite metaphor of hopelessly mismatched odds. That's you. By any rational reckoning, startups should be dead before they even start. So if some disaffected insider at the acquiring company accosts you in a bar and starts spilling the beans, you buy him another beer and lean in close. You'll need every advantage you can get. As a bit of local color, where did these deep-tweet meetings actually take place? Beyond the aforementioned undocumentable phone calls, we'd occasionally meet in person. One meeting place was the Epicenter Cafe on Harrison, between 3rd and 4th. Comically, it was located next door to a public mental health clinic for the severely disturbed and the drug addicted. On the other side of it was the Soma Whole Foods, where the overpaid techies, your humble correspondent included, kept themselves in foofy vittles. Whether you approached Epicenter from east or west along Harrison, you wended your way through either startup hipsters dropping $6 for organic asparagus water, or human wrecks who thought French bulldogs were in a galactic conspiracy to kill them. Often, given the reigning shabby chic aesthetic, you couldn't immediately distinguish between the techno-hipsters and the drugged-out homeless. As the hardened Soma veteran joke goes, the homeless have Android phones while the techies have iPhones. Epicenter was good for deep tweet, as it was Twitter's unofficial off-site cafe. At the time, Twitter HQ was located directly behind the restaurant on Folsom. The cafe had a back door that was directly reachable from Twitter, so your contact would be waiting for you inside when you rolled up. Order some dark-as-my-soul West Coast roast and, surrounded by the usual Asperger's populace of monomaniacal geeks clacking on MacBooks, Get it on with Deep Tweet and discuss your rumble in the tech jungle. The entire SF startup world, in case you haven't been keeping track of the geography, lives between 1st and 8th Streets and between King and Market Streets in SF's Soma, a former bombed-out industrial space dotted with a few flop houses and taken over by addicts until the late 90s. It was the 8x8 block playing field of global technology. Consider for a moment what fertile fields of globe-spanning technology these human shit-strewn streets were. Twitter provides a broadcast platform for political disaffection and political extremism, and heads of states worldwide are unseated in scandals and governments violently overthrown in the Middle East, destabilizing an entire region. A local startup like Airbnb takes off, and real estate values in Barcelona and Berlin get roiled. The two-century-old bourgeois fortunes of those cities, having survived both Generalissimo Franco and the U.S. Army Air Force Bomber Command, get kicked around by a bunch of scheming geeks and designers housed in an expensively renovated former factory. If a local app like Uber makes it big, taxi drivers in Paris and Mexico City will be rioting and sending bricks through cars' windshields. 
If Uber wins, Madrid taxi drivers' wives will be weeping and wondering what's for dinner. This was the Major League Serious Shit Take No Prisoners Championship of Tech Entrepreneurship. And if you were going to play, you'd better show up ready to bite the ass off of a bear. Footnote. This, of course, is an homage to Michael Lewis's Liar's Poker, in which John Goodfreund, the villain of that work, says one had to be ready to come in every morning, willing to bite the ass off of a bear, to work at Solomon Brothers. End footnote. Acquisition Chicken Is it a reasonable thing, I ask you, for a grown man to run about and hit a ball? Poker's the only game fit for a grown man. Then your hand is against every man, and every man's hand is against yours. Teamwork? Whoever made a fortune by teamwork? There's only one way to make a fortune, and that's to down the fellow who's up against you. W. Somerset Maugham, Straight Flush Sunday, March 27, 2011 It's against my interests as a Twitter employee, but I recommend you seek to create an auction for your company. So did Deep Tweet whisper in my ear, right as this acquisition party was getting started. As CEO, I had a fiduciary duty to capture the maximum value for my shareholders, of whom I was among the largest, naturally. Funny that word, fiduciary. From the Latin fiduciarius, meaning binding faith, legally it refers to a condition of one party acting on behalf of another with complete agency and assumed trust. In practice, whenever CEOs say it is their fiduciary duty to do something, it means they are granting themselves more license to screw someone, which of course is what I was about to do vis-a-vis -vis Twitter. What was the hurry? As soon as matters progressed with Twitter beyond the exploratory stages, and assuming the company really wanted us, it would put a term sheet on the table. Right next to that would be a no-shop contract, which would mean any real selling of the company was done. A no-shop is either a separate contract or a clause in the term sheet stipulating that the company cannot solicit other acquirers during the period of negotiation and due diligence. Usually slotted for 60 days, they're enforceable in court, and some even carry penalties. The point is to put the company's self-pimping efforts on pause while the two parties get down to the serious business of haggling. Deep Tweet's advice was timely and correct, and to have material offers on the table to use against Twitter, we needed to start that process ASAP. In fact, we were already late, as any other company was likely to move slower than this Twitter gift that had fallen into our laps. I beat on every door in the valley, any place I could get an intro, and most places I couldn't, to shop the company out. I hounded everyone I knew at Google for an intro, even going through Rust to pitch ourselves to their M&A guy. I asked Sokka, who ignored my inquiries. As we were to learn, this was a man who only ever talked his book. Footnote. This is Wall Street ease for someone who publicly boosts only assets he himself currently owns, selfishly promoting his own gain, rather than providing disinterested analysis or advice. It's the withering criticism leveled at the talking heads on Bloomberg or CNBC when they promote some stock or another. End footnote. To the very end, we'd never managed to get so much as an email reply from Google, despite our entire product being built on it. I rustled up Microsoft's startup evangelist, a minor miracle worker named Joel Frenusik, to get intros to the acquisitions team in Redmond. They responded, and we found time to do a remote pitch the following week. Then, of course, there was Facebook.
It had not escaped my attention that one of the other companies in our YC batch, named Wariscope, had a founding CEO who was now at Facebook. The company worked on mobile apps that tracked where you were, either socially to share with your girlfriend or for the paranoid parts of the market. For example, the parents of teenagers. The CEO was a guy named Mick Johnson, whose crowning achievement at YC was ending his demo day pitch with a video of himself breaking a cinder block with a karate punch. He reminded me of a young Russell Crowe in Romper Stomper, in both looks and attitude. If you've seen the film, this should inspire terror. I recalled that one day Wariscope had just disappeared without a trace, although there had been rumors of a stealth deal. The net of it was that Johnson somehow magically reappeared as a product manager at Facebook. I sent him an email in which I conjured the magic formula, sure to evoke any acquisitive company's interest. We were in play and needed to talk to someone in a relevant product team before Facebook missed out on this choice opportunity. He made an intro to that star of the advertising firmament, Gokul Rajaram, a man who'd influenced my life in more ways than one. Tuesday, March 29, 2011 The scene, a claustrophobically small conference room buried inside Twitter somewhere. Jess Farilli and Kevin Thau, Twitter's VP of Business Development, across the table from me, looking a bit awkward. I was expecting bad news. Where things stood was as follows. Chris Saka, in his infinite deal-making wisdom, had told them we had another offer in the works, which was a barefaced lie. If Twitter gave us a term sheet, though, we most certainly could conjure another offer. So you see, it wasn't really a lie, merely a truth that hadn't quite birthed itself and needed only the recipient's credulity to make it true. Fake it till you make it, went the oft-repeated Silicon Valley saw. As a result, Twitter felt that there was a fire under its ass to produce a deal. I had read them the memo, inspired by PG's dismissive email about potential acquisitions, that we weren't willing to even undergo the acquisition colostomy unless the terms were inviting from the very beginning. And so, after my bromantic date with Adam Bain the previous Wednesday, I had stipulated the need to see a term sheet sooner rather than later. Jess had actually promised one for the previous Friday. But Twitter hadn't delivered. All we'd gotten was the boilerplate NDA that had triggered phone calls to Oric, and nothing beyond that. I had gone grousing to Sokka, who promised that we'd get a term sheet fast and it wouldn't be some bullshit number but a great deal to convince us to sell. With Jess, I had maintained a tone of harried and mild exasperation, all the while trying to drum up anything like a competing offer. Despite my deception around urgency that didn't really exist, Twitter owed us an answer of some sort, either yay or nay, preferably with a dollar sign attached, and this was the meeting where they were excusing themselves. Following a brief prelude that made it clear that things hadn't gone as swimmingly at their Monday meeting as we had hoped, she dropped this. We're thinking of this deal as a $5 million thing. She looked me right in the eye. Kevin sat next to her, silent and smiling. I thought about that for a moment. That was way away from where it needed to be. We had been raising money at just under that before the Adkami lawsuit. It needed to be double that. After an appropriate pause, I replied, Well, I'll have to talk this over with the other founders and the investors. Clipped goodbyes and I was out the door. The disappearing ink name tag hadn't been more than ten minutes around my neck. A hundred yards outside, in the alleyway that ran behind Twitter, I called Sokka. He had also failed to deliver, in a way. He had promised us that Twitter would generate a term sheet quickly. 
He made a big show of being pissed and vowed to get back to me. Dawdling in the alleyway after the soccer call, I took a look around to make sure no Twitter employees I knew were nearby and consulted my email and calendar. The day before, Facebook had emailed, proposing we come in and meet some of the ads team. It was to be a formal pitch to some of their leadership. Mick's introduction to Gokul had borne fruit. Gokul's admin had confirmed the meeting that very morning. We were on for tomorrow afternoon. I'd make sure Twitter had to hurry for real this time. I walked back south on 3rd Street on what was becoming the well-trod path between Twitter and Adgrok. Five million dollars, just think of it, a fantastic sum. But was it? Before the lawsuit, we were raising on a cap, that is, a nominal valuation, of four million dollars, and even as this deal was happening, YC companies fresh out of their batch were raising at more than five million dollars. The market price for acquired engineers in the valley then was anywhere from half a million to two million dollars each. That refers to the total equity vesting, probably over four years. The salary, which was something in the $90,000 to $150,000 range, just paid for rent and beer and wasn't part of the total sum quoted. So $5 million for three hires plus intellectual property Twitter might use, with a premium for YC bling and thought leadership evinced via our glorious blog, was way too cheap. We hadn't risked everything from our finances to our sanity for just over a million each that would take four years to earn. I could picture each of the boys digesting the offer, though, probably with their respective mates by their side. They'd have a very different take on it. In the case of Argyris, it meant thinking about an apartment in Athens, and the fantasy he had of opening a combined cafe-vinyl record store with Simla, his new wife. He already came from a wealthy family, but this meant his own financial independence, and so soon after graduating. In the case of MRM, it meant paying off his mortgage and no worries about paying for karate lessons for the kids, not to mention help with college down the line. It would be the most he'd ever made in a long, hard-working, but not particularly remunerative career. Adgrok's first unsalaried months had knocked out what little nest egg he had. This would change everything. How about our investors? What were their numbers? We had effectively sold them 22% of the company in our desperate, undervalued seed round. Assuming a pro-rata share of the deal, they'd be seeing about a million pre-tax. Given they'd invested just under half a mil, it meant a full-on 100% return. They'd double their money in just over six months. That was decent money by any honest man's standard. Some of our investors saw it very differently, however, and the reasons underlined the distinction I drew earlier between old-school angels and more modern micro-VC versions of same. To Russ, who was investing his own money, and who was essentially playing a market in people like a savvy gambler at a poker hall, this was a fine return. He'd take his cash, or shares in Twitter, if that's what it came to, possibly sell them, and then invest in other companies, upping his returns and suffering occasional burns as well. Sokka had a very different attitude toward potential deals, which is why Sokka, or any VC really, would push you to mimic his own distorted risk profile, which prefers a tenfold return, even if it marginally increases the chance of complete failure. Twofold just ain't cool enough for the limited partners, and not why they handed over their money to Sokka in the first place. The risk expectations of founders and investors can often be severely misaligned. I hate sports analogies, but here's one to explain this vital point. 
Most VCs are playing a version of baseball in which the only way to score is to hit a home run when you're at bat. They don't care if you disgrace or impoverish yourself and strike out, and they don't care if you get a solid line drive that lands you on second. To them, strikeouts and getting on base are equally pointless, and so they'll push to proverbially swing for the fences no matter the count or the team you're up against. The reason for this all-or-nothing approach is how their funds are structured. VCs, or so-called angels like Sokka, raise a fund out of which they'll provision some number of investments. Barring doubling down on the same company, which they might do if the fund still has money when a company raises again, those investments are effectively fire and forget. The fund's total profit will be calculated from whatever those initial bets return, unlike, say, a hedge fund portfolio manager who rolls the winnings from one good bet into the next, compounding a series of returns into something truly huge. VCs do not take liquidity from one company's exit and pour it into yet another's. Footnote. This isn't absolutely completely true. There are some funds, in the minority, which are called evergreen funds, and which get topped up yearly by either new investors or returns from previous investments. End footnote. This, at heart, is why the go-big-or-go-home strategy makes the Silicon Valley world turn, and why entrepreneurs push themselves to be either the next Airbnb or nothing. The entrepreneur who bucks this and creates a long-term business of recurring revenue but relatively slow growth is dismissed as running a mere lifestyle business, which is a dirty word among VCs. Of course, the entrepreneurs are quite happy to run a revenue-generating concern that spits out cash as low-tax dividends and dedicate their lives to skiing or guitar playing or whatever. But their investors will hate them for it, and the entrepreneurs will suffer a loss of social capital as a result and perhaps find they can't raise money for their next venture. Personally, I was ecstatic that Sokka, in his role as institutional investor, would almost inevitably oppose this deal and be my cudgel to beat the boys into rejecting it. I probably couldn't have scared up even $5,000 of my own personal money right then, but $5 million for a nine-month-old company composed of three guys and a pile of code just wasn't enough. The market price for a company at this stage was much more than that, and this little former Goldman quant sold only at the market price or better. Alone, I would have been outgunned against the boys and Russ, but Sokka, loud, opinionated Sokka, would talk them out of it.